Hi readers, and welcome to Beth's Bookcast, a podcast for book lovers and a place to share new books, enjoy old favorites, and think about the reading life. I'm Beth Jordahl, your host, a lifelong reader and believer in the power of story. Thank you for joining me today. Now pour yourself a cup of something delicious, settle down in your favorite comfy seat, and let's talk about books. Hello and welcome to the bookcast, Mara Eller. I am so glad to have you here today. I'm really excited because we're kind of digging into two awesome, wonderful books and comparing and contrasting. And so, yeah, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So would you mind just maybe kind of telling us a little bit about yourself just as we get started? Sure. Um, I'm a writer, writing teacher, coach, editor, Kind of wear a lot of hats. Um, I have my own editing services and I teach some online writing classes. And I'm also a high school English teacher and well, also guidance counselor. But um, one of the books we're talking about today is one that I have taught several times to my 12th grade English students. So um, I'm definitely a book nerd in that sense, <laughs> as well as just a word lover. Yeah. Well, book nerds are obviously the best kind of people. So I think we're going to get along great. <laughs> awesome. So um, the two books that we're kind of talking about today and jumping into are Jane Eyre, which I love. I've talked about it frequently. I think I've done a couple episodes about Jane Eyre. Charlotte Bronte wrote it. It's beautiful. Um, and then the second book we're talking about is Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. And um, the two seemingly from the outside are very different. But um, as you were reading them, as you were teaching Their Eyes Were Watching God, you found actually a lot of similarities. So I'm really excited to hear some of that. But as a warning for listeners, we are going to get pretty deep into the stories. So if you haven't read either one and you really want to read it before you hear us talk about it, pause this episode now, go read it, come back. Um, we'll wait. Okay. Now that you're back, thank you so much. All right, here we go. So I want to give like a little kind of overview of the two books. Um, so Mara, since you have taught their eyes were watching God, why don't you give us the intro for that book? Sure. So it's by Zora Neale Hurston. Um, she's an American author. Uh, it was published in 1937, and she is or was a woman of color, African-American. She was um, born and raised in Florida, I believe, or, and that's where the book mainly takes place, is in mm -hmm. northern and central Florida. Mm -hmm. And it tells the story of Janie. It's actually, I think, semi-autobiographical in ways. It begins when Janie is a young girl it gives a little bit of her backstory her her she's raised by her grandmother who was born a slave um and then you know goes through the, the civil war and reconstruction and then it's set in the probably 19 teens or 1920s mm -hmm. you know when there's a lot of sharecropping and obviously um you know still a lot of racial discrimination mm -hmm. but that's not really a focus of the book which she was actually criticized for this book and her writing in general because she refused to buy into the 
the sort of ethos of mm -hmm. African-American art and literature at the time. She was part okay. of the Harlem Renaissance and she didn't want to write about black oppression. She mm -hmm. wanted to write about the black experience mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just write about characters who happen to be black and their full humanity, um, mm -hmm. you know, good, bad, educated, uneducated, you know, ugly, pretty, all of all of that experience. And she's trained as an anthropologist as well, which is why mm. you see so much of her um, dialect in the way she writes um, the dialogue. So yeah. some of it can be pretty tough um, to read for a lot of my students. They have like no idea what the characters are saying <laughs> for a while. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and so it can really be a great idea to listen to it, which I guess is what, what you did in this case. Mm -hmm, I did, yep. And I hear there's a really great narrator for it. But um, anyway, so part of it is she she really wants to, her project here is that she really wants to show this Southern and Florida African-American culture the way it is. Mm. Um, she's sort of part of the realist movement. Okay. Um, but then she tells the story of Janie, who's this um, passionate, um, yearning woman who I see on a journey to find intimacy mm -hmm. and, and through that process, needing to find who she really is. And she's searching for a romantic partner, but of course she she has she discovers herself along the way. And so she goes through three phases, three husbands she learns different things about life and love mm -hmm. and um then the story is actually told by her um to a friend of hers right, kind of right. from the end so it's all it's all a flashback for the most part yeah and then uh you know in contrast and in comparison uh Jane Eyre obviously was written by Charlotte Bronte <laughs> Um, under a male pseudonym in 1847 London. And I guess in some ways, not perfectly, obviously, but in some ways, Charlotte Bronte was also criticized for her writing, not in, not in the um, racial area, but in like, as a woman writing a novel, right? There was a lot of criticism for her as well. Mm. And then her book is about Jane. <laughs> so they even share a name, but Jane being an orphan raised by her awful aunt and then um, going through school and then going into teaching and from there meeting Mr. Rochester. Um, <clears throat> if you haven't read Jane Eyre or you want kind of a, a more in-depth review of Jane Eyre as a whole. I actually did record a podcast about Jane Eyre. So I'll make sure to link it in the description so that you can go back and listen to that as well. But it, it, Jane's story is not told in retrospect in flashback, but certain parts of it are as well. Um, and in a way, both stories are kind of growing up, maybe growing up is the wrong term, but <laughs> they're kind yeah. of stories of maturing right going from yeah. one place in your mindset in your life in your ideation all the way through to a whole nother acceptance of of who the who the main character is right Jane and Janie both learn that yeah. and then 
finding a new life within that and outside of that as well. Yeah, I hadn't actually articulated that part before, but they both contain a coming of age story, but then go beyond it to mm-hmm. like, like whatever that next step is of coming into one's self mm-hmm. in a really full, deep way. Yeah. Yeah. I've often wondered, like, I know we give like teenagers, right? They have, they have the, and you obviously you work with 12th graders. So teenagers kind of have that rite of passage where they get to mature and grow. But I've often thought that like 20 year olds need the same grace, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Like once you're in your twenties and your later twenties and then into your thirties, I feel like you go through a whole nother, and maybe this just continues on for the rest of your life, but you go Mm -hmm. through a whole nother understanding, a whole nother area of growth. Um, Yeah. And it's not growing up, obviously, right? Because you now you're an adult, but it's a whole nother level of maturing is the only yeah. word that comes yeah. to mind. It's like um, self-discovery that leads to like a new level of maturity. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I actually, I love how in Their Eyes Were Watching God, teenagers obviously go through this process. And then like you were saying, like in your 20s, most people go through another round mm-hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. at least in our age, Mm -hmm. our era. Um, But then it certainly can last longer than that or have more, certainly have more rounds. But, you know, Janie ends up being 40 or in her early 40s, you know, by the time she finally arrives at a sense of like full self-love and satisfaction with herself and her life. And I resonate with that in some ways because, I just turned 40 this year and Mm -hmm. it's only been recently that I've really started, I think, to live into my purpose and calling and like the fullness of who I was created to be. So Mm -hmm. in that sense, I think it's an encouragement that, you know, the journey takes however long it takes. And we just, we keep learning and growing and, you know, taking life as it comes. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think maybe you kind of touched on it when you said like the self-discovery, because maybe as each year rolls around or as each new experience rolls around, right, you kind of, you kind of have to figure out a new way forward. And I, I, I'm 33. And so um, I have found that in the last three years, I feel like I've gone through more growth and more experience and more self-discovery and self-love than I did ever in my 20s. And so for me, that's fascinating because it just feels like, yeah, you just kind of keep, if you're open to it, right, you keep mm-hmm. uncovering new areas of yourself. So when you were talking about um, their eyes were watching God, you mentioned that uh, Janie goes through kind of her whole life, well, her whole life up until the point where she's telling the story, searching for true and in- intimacy. Do you think you could share a little bit more about that? Yeah, so it... It actually just came to me this year as I was teaching it for the, I think, third time. I love that. Um, that it's usually talked about as a search for um, her voice and autonomy and like sort of control and power. And, and there is that, but I feel like that was leaving out the whole um, intimacy and romance part. And so where I think that is super clear is towards the beginning, um, there's this pivotal, I think, 
pivotal scene, like the inciting incident that kind of sets her off on this quest for intimacy is um, when she has this like awakening under a blooming pear tree and she sees the bees pollinating the flowers. And there's some really beautiful imagery that she uses to describe it. Um, that's like, you know, a borderline racy almost like definitely yeah. was considered that way at the time. And like when my students read that, I teach at a Christian school and it, you know, it's like definitely a little bit, you know, it's 12th grade, but it's still a little bit pushing the, pushing the boundaries. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's easy to just read that scene and say, oh gosh, it's her sexual awakening. And like, let's kind of move on in, in, right. the, case, in the case of my students uh -huh. or just to say, oh, it's just sexual. But, you know, the way it's described, I really was convinced this time that it's not a sexual awakening. It's a spiritual awakening and mm -hmm. that the sexual is part of that for her. And I would, I would see it that way as well, because this spiritual is all about connection with, you know, whether it's what you name it as God or, you know, a, a spirit, something bigger than ourselves. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it is about intimacy. It's about connecting fully and deeply with someone. And, um, and then I think also part of that ends up being connecting deeply with ourselves. So and I think that's true. Like she sort of discovers that later in the book. But anyway, she sees, she sees these bees and these flowers and she's like, I don't know what this is, but I want it. Like it is so beautiful and beyond anything I've ever experienced or imagined. And I need to go find it. And so right after that, she goes and kisses this boy that's like a neighbor or something that she says, like, I never thought about him twice before, but she's like, well, maybe that'll be it. And then <laughs> um, Nanny, her, the grandmother is raising her again, another similarity. They're both mm -hmm. orphans, you know, Nanny panics that she's going to get pregnant out of wedlock and her life will be ruined. And so she right. immediately tries to marry her off to this really old guy who is at least sort of decently well off. And of course, that doesn't end up being the bee to her flower that right. she's looking for. And so she keeps on this quest. So that's how, how I see it as like the narrative clearly begins with this scene and it sets her up for like, what is she looking for? Right. And I think it's, it's intimacy. And do you see that in Jane Eyre as well? So the reason I started comparing these <clears throat> at all, because as you say, it is not something one would just sort of, oh, this reminds me of that one. Right. It was just from such different eras and such different styles of writing. Mm -hmm. um, but I have a, an in-person book club and we just happened to do Jane Eyre one month mm -hmm. and then do, or no, actually it was the other way around. We did The Rise of Watching God one month and then did Jane Eyre the next month. Mm -hmm. And I all of a sudden realized, whoa, these are so similar in these really surprising um, and interesting ways. For Jane and Jane Eyre, I don't know if I would say that her journey is 100%, you know, a quest for intimacy. Right. Because there's so much about integrity and an 
and autonomy, mm-hmm. you know, of like yeah. wanting to be her own master. But I also think those are related. Autonomy is like some degree of autonomy is required in order to then choose intimacy, to like choose connection yeah. and stuff like that. So I don't know. Do you think, I mean, certainly Jane ends up desiring intimacy right. and finding intimacy and learning about it. But I don't know if I would say that that's like, that you could really see it as a quest story for intimacy. Yeah, I wonder if in in Jane Eyre, it almost shows up more as a quest to be known and to be seen. Uh, Because obviously, you know, in her aunt's house, uh, they don't want to see her. They don't want to acknowledge her. They don't want to understand her or know her, right? She's kind of like outside of all of it. And then at the school, her friend and the other girls and the community there, right? She starts to feel like, oh, maybe, maybe I'm not completely alone. Maybe I'm not, maybe I can be seen and can be uh, understood. And then obviously like, you know, Helen dies. (laughs) So that sets it off again. But then when she does go to Rochester's house, she finds a companion in Mrs. Fairfax. Um, you know, they sit together, they talk, and it may not be on the same level that maybe uh, intimacy is, but she's seen and she's valued for what she brings to the table. And even Adele, in her sweet girl way, values mm-hmm. Jane. Yeah. And then with Rochester, right, she finds someone who looks at her and doesn't see something to be disregarded. Mm-hmm. Um, but see something to be valued and taken care of. But then, of course, you're right. Her her um, integrity is such that she can't even accept that, right? She runs away from his marriage, from his home, and seeks out. But then again, she finds companionship and and love and friendship with Mary and Diana and Sinjin in a way, obviously, but yeah, you know, just kind of, so not intimacy maybe with Jane Eyre, uh, obviously, but being known, being valued. And actually, as you're, as you were talking through that, I realized I might actually change my story on, on that because maybe, maybe I was getting confused by her own confusion about what she's really Mm -hmm. looking for Mm -hmm. and that she I think because her upbringing is so intensely lonely Mm. she like as an as a young child that maybe she just decides that's impossible and so she just thinks okay well if I can't you know subconsciously if I can't have a real relationship like a, a loving intimate connection with anyone, then at least leave me alone so I can have right. one with myself and with God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so she, so like her goal becomes, I just want some independence so I can have adventures and like not be meddled with, yeah. not be controlled by other people. But then she realizes that's not really what she wants. And you can see that at the end that she doesn't now, I'm thinking of that part sort of in the middle where she's like she's staying at Mr. Rochester's and being the governess and she looks out and she's like, you know, if only 
women have the freedom that men have and I just want to go and see the world and do things and they both have this element because this comes up in there as watching God too of like they're mm. seeking adventure like they want to chase their dreams and they like in their eyes are watching God she talks about horizon that and she uses that as a symbol of like being able to pursue one's dreams and have adventures and like live this bigger fuller life but and they both end up returning to a place that they've lived before um more or less or you know a person that they've been with before and mm -hmm. living in Jane's case a, a pretty small life as far as yeah. like the worldly sense like she's not traveling and seeing I mean maybe they do end up doing a little bit of that but like right. mainly she's like living in this house with her blind husband you know so it's like yeah she realizes no that's not I thought that's what I wanted but really that was like a false treasure and then mm -hmm. the, the real treasure is just that deep full intimacy of being able to be with someone who values you for who you are and mm -hmm. accepts you with all your flaws and um obviously like in the last episode um where i talked with ariel about jane um we talk about how she's an enneagram nine mm -hmm. right and i think uh you know you mentioned it uh, and i agree that janie has a lot of those same characteristics same tendencies um and the nines uh my understanding i am not a nine i <laughs> i'm an enneagram five um, but I'm married to an Enneagram nine. So my oh, understanding um, is that Enneagram nines can see everybody else's perspective. They can see everybody's side. They can understand where everybody's coming from, but they often don't feel seen or understood and they long for that true connection. Well, episode that you did with Ariel was so good. Well, I guess you, you actually did two with her. Mm -hmm. but yeah. the second one I think is where you talk about the Enneagram yeah. um, and that's actually what inspired me to reread Jane Eyre and that we're talking about it now but yeah. uh, I'm thinking of Janie as an Enneagram 9 too because she has that search for her voice which is something that they talk about a lot with nines yep. that they have a lot of trouble um, you know speaking up for themselves mm -hmm. and uh, known as the peacemaker you know who will who can tend to go along with other people's desires and preferences and mm -hmm. um, instructions because it's sort of easier. And I loved what Ariel said on your episode about nines where she said they are getting true connection, but they'll settle for a lack of conflict. Right. And I thought, okay, well, that's Janie. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yep. <laughs> Especially in her second relationship, which is the longest one with Joe, <clears throat> he at least has this affection for her and does seem to appreciate her, especially at the beginning of their relationship. And he also seems to have a sense of adventure. Mm -hmm. So she's like, all right, well, this seems like definitely an upgrade from the old guy who smells bad. <laughs> right. Um, and then also like threatened to kill her. So, yeah. Yeah. Not so good. <laughs> one to walk away from, I suppose. Um, but then Joe is like, not really, really care about her. Like he cares about her as much as she helps him achieve his dreams. Like he wants her to be 
sort of a doll, like he calls her a baby doll or something early on, like a doll on the shelf that looks pretty, or like he also calls her a bell cow, which is the, the like lead cow that wears the bell around its neck to okay. like, you know, it's like the best cow, but it's like, okay, well, that's great that she's the best cow, but she's still <laughs> livestock to you. Right. <laughs> now she's like a trophy cow instead of like a mule, like she was right. in the first relationship. So anyway, she just ends up wanting to fully acknowledge that and just retreating into herself for something like mm-hmm. 20 years Yep. and just watching her life sort of waste away, yep. avoiding that conflict until finally she realizes she can't take it anymore until he's basically dying. So, Right. Interesting um, to backtrack for this note a little bit, but you had mentioned yes. that like there are three phases for both Jane and Janie. And as you were talking about Joe, I was like, oh yeah, okay, I can see, I can see them that phase for both of them. But if we backtrack a little bit um, and we go back to, right, Logan, um, Janie's uh, husband, right, mm-hmm. treats her, right, like, yeah, not very nice, terrible situation. And we can go to Jane's time with her family and at the school, right, like the beginning of their situations where things mm. are just terrible. <laughs> it's like neither one of them is treated really even like they're human. Yeah. Just like what what work can you do? Mm-hmm. And if you're not going to do that work, then no value at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and um, going back to that, they're both seeking that true connection, right? In that first phase, they are completely denied connection, right? Yeah. There, there is no knowing. There is no loving. There is no connection there. They're just completely denied it. But then when we get to the second phase, right? Like what you were talking about with Joe. Um, and then in uh, you had mentioned that that reminds you of Sinjin. Yeah. So the order gets, you know, off there between them. But yeah. I sort of compare... Sinjin, which is Jane's third phase in yes. the novel, to Janie's second phase with Joe, mm-hmm. um, because they both show her a lot more attention mm-hmm. and affection than she got, you know, than than the the Jane got in the first. Gen, but then she finds out sooner or later that it's not really it's not love. It's not love of her love, not even love. It's, um, yeah, it's like appreciation of her as a tool, like as, as a means to an end. So Joe appreciates Janie because she is a status symbol for him because she's so beautiful that everyone's impressed that he has this beautiful wife and, um, she can also like help him in the store. And then for Sinjin, it's that he needs a partner for his missionary work. Yeah. And he's impressed with her, you know, intellect and her like character. But she's like, that's not, that's not all of me. Yeah. And that's not love. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even. She's like, uh, you know, I'll go with you, um, but I won't marry you. Let's go as 
let's go as friends, as cousins. And he's like, well, that's not good enough. And so in a way, he's kind of like your desires and you as a person are not good enough unless you be exactly what I want. Right. Yeah. And then we see that uh, with Joe and Janie as well. Right. Where he's yeah. like, you have to be exactly what I want. And like you mentioned, right, she sinks into that for for a long time. Yeah, um, so it symbolizes in her third phase, right? So she was like, heck no, um, yeah. <laughs> see ya. And then Janie obviously has to get to the point where she can say that. Yeah, that's that's a good difference to point out that Jane has already experienced more of a maturation or transformation. Like she's already seen what she wants mm-hmm. um, with Rochester and she mm-hmm. just couldn't have it because of the way it was offered to her, it was going to require her to jeopardize her own view of herself. Right. Um, like basically jeopardize, you could say her intimacy with herself and her intimacy with God. Yep. And I noticed this time when I read it, that she also predicted that it would ultimately jeopardize her intimacy with Rochester because mm-hmm. I thought that the power dynamics, uh, her being, you know, early, compromised yeah morally compromised would eventually lead him to despise her right so um yeah so she is able i think to see through that false love from Mm -hmm. a lot more quickly than janie who she's like well this is the best i've ever seen and maybe right maybe this is good enough and maybe it's not as bad as i think and yeah you know but then her, her life just it's not even that many pages and then 20 years has gone by right. and she's it's symbolized in that book with her head rag that joe that she cover her hair mm-hmm. with i guess a, a cloth a rag and sort of tie it up because her hair is this symbol of her beauty and like power Mm-hmm. as a woman like her, sort of her individuality she's it's her hair is um very attractive by their standards so yeah. by tying it up she's you know, having to cover up part of who she is in order to meet his expectations yeah and then in um third phase or you know in the soulmate true intimacy phase yeah right, we have two men who are vastly different from that Right. They don't want them to change who they are or, well, I guess Rochester does at one point. So maybe that's not totally, but they don't want them. They want them to be safe and loved and seen. Right. And we see that with both, with both T-Kick and Rochester. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So with Janie, that's the third phase that Mm -hmm. after Joe dies, she decides to live on her own for a while, which is pretty wild and bold for the time but she has some money from her previous marriage meets tea cake and which is a funny name (laughs) Um, but you know it symbolizes how sweet he is yes and which she's which she says at some point she says like you sweet as all that or something and uh, he Mm -hmm. is very sweet to her and you can see almost immediately in the way their relationship is written their first interaction he says like checkers and she's like oh i don't know how to play checkers and he's like mm-hmm. well 
let me teach you. And like mm-hmm. it's 20 years of her living in this place where people play checkers all the time and no one's ever taught her. Yeah. Um, but, and he also asks in that scene at least once and then multiple times after that, like, well, what do you want? Like, do you like this? What do mm-hmm. you like? What do yeah. you, you know, which no one has ever asked her. And so this time reading it of just how clear it was that he was inviting true intimacy of like, he wanted Mm -hmm. to know, like, who are you really? Like, Mm -hmm. that's what I really care about. Yeah. And then he was, of course, meeting that intimacy with his own vulnerability of sharing who he was and being honest and even admitting some faults pretty early on. Mm -hmm. And of course, Rochester, the story is a little <laughs> more complicated because yeah. so much more baggage, but um, I think there's some similarities between him and Tea Cake even mm-hmm. because they're both kind of like a little bit of a scoundrel at different yeah. times. <laughs> um, Tea Cake sounds like he's kind of a flirt. He, like he's just that yeah. kind of guy that like he doesn't, he's not trying to flirt, but just how he is. He's just very yeah. open and like, friendly perhaps overly friendly by some standards and then he likes to gamble and he likes to have fun I think he's like either a he's maybe a Enneagram seven with like an eight wing or something yeah um but he's not like addicted to gambling anything like that from what the book shows but he does enjoy it um he loves playing music and he loves going out to bars at night Mm -hmm. and a little scene where he does that without Janie and actually steals her money to do it, which is mm-hmm. like, oh gosh, you know, this is going to be terrible. Yeah. But in the end, when he comes back, he's like, oh, why are you mad? Like he really, I think, didn't understand. Yeah. And he ends up realizing I'm actually mad is because you left me behind. Like I want to go with you. Yeah. And so after that moment, they're basically inseparable and yeah. you know he he never lies about it and he does win back her money and he mm-hmm. doesn't make any more of it mm-hmm. and she just I think that's a powerful scene because she accepts him for who he is yeah because you know what that's okay like he told me he liked to gamble a long time ago so it's really on me <laughs> to accept that about him yeah also she sets a boundary of saying like do what, you know, be yourself, but bring me with you. Yeah. There you see that connection, right? That very deep, let's do all of this together. I am not a tool to be used. I'm not livestock. I am a part of this. We're a partnership. Yeah. And then Rochester, of course, very different culture, very different circumstances. Um, And of course, he's like tortured by his past that he literally can't escape and it's like in his house you know haunted haunting his house yeah but (laughs) literally um, (laughs) (laughs) but he also has this fun loving side that like he just wants to go and have a good time and he just want you know and that's partly how he's coping with his like something but you know he's like not always honest with Jane either Um, and he like does the whole trick where he pretends to be a gypsy. Yes, I order, love that scene. <laughs> in order to like trick her into saying how she feels about him or yeah. something. Which, 
at book club, some of the people were like, that is so not okay that he did that. And, you know, and they were like, she should never, she should never have been with him. He's like, totally not good enough for her. And, and I was like, I, I totally see what they're saying, but Mm -hmm. also I think it's really endearing again Mm -hmm. in that like flawed way of like, everyone has flaws yeah, and he's like, just so terrified that she's going to reject him that he cannot like as much of all of his like boldness and like bluster when it comes to asking this governess who's like so beneath him in their social structure right to marry him he's just terrified that she's going to reject him and I think that's like so sweet and sad and like yes he needs to do some therapy (laughs) yes yeah like who doesn't (laughs) yeah I think it's fun too because you see that with both TKK and Rochester that they fall right yeah despite their circumstances despite their lives um they have that playfulness and I think in Rochester you can see he understands people he understands power dynamic because of the way you know he treats he he treats Blanche and um her community right he understands his role in that um, but he can see with Jane that she doesn't fit into that at all, right? Yeah. She doesn't fit into those normal rules, um, and he doesn't want to be loved for his money. Uh, has happened to him again and again. <clears throat> Obviously, like you know, you can kind of see how he really wants connection too, you know, yeah. and that matches with Jane's desire for connection too. And I don't know necessarily how that aspect maybe ties into tea cake and Janie's relationship. Um, aside from once Rochester has secured Jane, even before then he wants her at everything, right? Yeah. He wants her to participate in everything, be there with him through everything, even things she doesn't understand. He wants to be with tea cake in that same way. Well, and tea cake, wants Janie to be with him also so there's that moment where tea cake keeps coming home from work a lot and Janie's like you need to go to work and he's like I just miss you too much will you come come work with me in the fields which stands out because that's exactly what she was trying to get away from in her first marriage but she's happy to do it in this one because it's not about her working as livestock it's about her being with her husband yeah we had we well you kind of mentioned um obviously like jane and janie are very similar but the one big difference well maybe not the biggest difference but one of the differences is their level of attraction attractiveness yeah books right janie is described as beautiful i think if i remember correctly like that's the very first thing in the book is her beauty um obviously is described as very plain (laughs) Yeah, and, that's something that both characters, like both writers comment on yeah. multiple times in the yeah. books. I, I was kind of like playing with it. Like, why would that be? Why would it be? And I think maybe it's just the time period that they were written in, right? Janie's uh, can be a tool of destruction, right? Yeah. It keeps her separated from other people it keeps her looking like a tool or looking like a trophy yeah and then Jane's 
plainness, her plain look keeps her also as a tool, as hmm. um, something to be used. It keeps her outside. And so in their own ways, uh, their looks were used as a way to distinguish them from the people around them. Oh, that's an interesting connection. Yeah. What do you think? Makes sense that they're, because Janie's looks definitely isolated her because she was the, the subject of a lot of jealousy. Right. Yep. Um, um, as you were talking, I was thinking, well, what is, what does Jane have that's the subject of jealousy or, you know, that could be sort of equivalent. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if it's being like her intellect or mm. her, her self-reliance, you know, it seems like maybe when yeah. she's with Rochester, like the other people there keep trying to hurt her and like manipulate her and she yeah. just doesn't care. Yeah. I mean, she, she kind of does a tiny bit, but you know, yeah. yeah, she can kind of separate it a little bit. Um, their looks and their status are all they have. And she has so much more than that. Yeah. Like she just refuses to be broken mm-hmm. or like cowed in spirit and so mm-hmm. maybe there's some some kind of equivalence there mm-hmm. and like this inner inner treasure that sort of keeps them going but also causes them some problems yeah well and I think at some point doesn't her well she gets all that money and so that can be a point of contention, right? I mean, I know that that's at, like, at the end, she does get all that money. But then, Jane, you're um, saying. Yeah, Jane, sorry, Jane Eyre gets all that money at the end. And so that kind of separates her. But at some point when she's talking to her Aunt Reed before she dies, I think she says something like, I was jealous of you. And I can't remember exactly what she says. Hmm. Um, but Jane was like, why were you mean to me? Uh, yeah. Did you never love me? And I believe that she says something about her. And now, now it's not coming to me, but being jealous of her. Yeah. I... Quick Google search. Okay. Like great. As well. <laughs> um, but it says mystery to jealous of Jane because she believed that her husband loved Jane more than his own children. And obviously, oh, right, like he right. dies even before we're introduced to as a young child right so this uncle that she probably has very few memories of right reason mrs reed treats her so terribly i don't know how that completely ties in but yeah there you go (laughs) i mean i think it's okay if if not everything ties in but yeah yeah interesting okay so you that jealousy aspect is something that they both had to deal with in different ways yeah at the end of the books um they end quite differently um story at the end it feels tragic right and Jane Eyre's story at the end feels like a happy ending like a victory almost so how how do you see these two endings uh together in a way yeah so I think their eyes were watching God tragic elements Mm -hmm. but that's not the end that's true so um so a great example of how the the great it's also a great example of how the external 
transformation or like arc can be different from the internal transformation or, you know, mm -hmm. character arc. So in Their Eyes Are Watching God, and this is definitely a spoiler if you haven't read it. So <laughs> one more reminder. Uh -huh. <laughs> so maybe go read it first. Like dies of rabies because yeah. he fought a rabid dog that was about to attack Janie. Yeah. So it's really a sac a self-sacrificial death that like yeah. in, in saving her, he ends up contracting this um, mortal disease. And then, well, and again, extra spoiler, she actually has to be the one that shoots him because yeah. he's about to like attack her in his rabid like state. Illusion. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's like a whole very poignant <laughs> part yes. of the book when yes. she's like, it's almost like worse. She's like, the dog killed me in the end because yeah. I've had to kill my true love mm -hmm. basically. Um, and it's just brutal, mm -hmm. but she, you know, that's not the end of the story. If it ended right there, yes. Tragedy. <laughs> yeah. But she, um, to defend herself on the stand because she gets tried for his murder, yeah. um, which is also pretty awful. But in that process, you see that she is having to use her voice in a way she's never done before, even in her marriage with Tea Cake. Yeah, and in, that's and true. You can even see the shooting of the gun as an expression of her voice and her will mm -hmm. that, you know, makes a loud noise. And, mm -hmm. you know, she's clearly taking matters into her own hands, even as she killed him, it was an act of love because mm -hmm. he wasn't himself at that point anyway. Mm -hmm. So she was putting him out of his misery and like, that's what he would have wanted her to do. For when sure. he's, you know, cause he's like trying to shoot her at that point. And yeah. then, so then she finally goes back to the home that she had um, in Ville from the very beginning of the book, but also it's her home in the middle of the book mm -hmm. and not a wonderful place for her Yeah. before this, but by the very end, she, it's a very peaceful, beautiful, beautiful ending yeah. where she, she has finished telling her friend Phoebe the story. So there's, she still has some intimacy and she's told, I mean, still a lot of intimacy really with Phoebe because yeah. we just told her the entire, this entire story that we all just heard us. Right. And that's a lot then, right there. That's a lot to share with someone. Yeah. And then, you know, and Phoebe just like bears witness to this story and it's like, wow, you know, you make me want to live more and do more and um, love more. And then Janie goes back to her own house and there's these beautiful images of, sort of his spirit like coming in mm -hmm. through the window or something and being with her yeah so i actually have this mm -hmm. part if you know, i can read it oh yeah go for it he says um then tea cake came prancing around where she was and the song of the sigh flew out the window the sigh was um sigh a sobbing sigh of sadness that had come out before like thinking about the day when she had to shoot him and the courthouse and all of that. Um, so this, the sigh flew out the window and lit in the top of the pine trees, tea cake with the sun for a shawl, 
Of course he wasn't dead. He could never be dead until she herself had finished feeling and thinking. The kiss of his memory made pictures of love and light against the wall. Here was peace. She pulled in her horizon like a great fishnet, pulled it from around the waist of the world and draped it over her shoulder. Mm -hmm. So much of life in its meshes. She called in her soul to come and see. Me like goosebumps every time I read yeah. it because the, that perfect bittersweet ending of, you know, lost yeah. the love of her life in, at least in the physical sense but she hasn't lost him in her memory and what she's gained is, you know, not that she would ever wish that he were dead, but like right. she's, what she's gained is so much greater in a sense that she, she has this satisfaction and that symbol of the horizon, of like she has lived fully and she has loved fully. Yeah. And like so many people, as she says at some point in the book, go through life and, you know, just never, come anywhere close to doing that. That's true. Yeah. Jane, Jane Eyre would feel the same way right. with Rochester. And he um, sort of like symbolically dies in yeah. a way, but, you know, with his injuries and losing his house and everything, but then doesn't physically die. So I still see right. some similarities there. And as far as like, there is great loss mm. and lost is more than made up for with what has been gained. Yeah. I think <clears throat> at the end of Jane Eyre, right? Um, she talks about how now they live in total equality. Mm -hmm. um, souls matched. Um, souls are happy together and they, they live in equality. And I guess, you know, hearing you read that last sentiment again, in a way, Janie finds that with tea cake as well you know, just kind of an equality, a togetherness um, of each other, despite the fact that he is gone. Yeah. Set these two books down together and look at them. Uh, it doesn't seem like there will be much um, more and that there would be a lot of differences. But honestly, the more we have talked about it, I feel like there's a lot of similarities and a lot of themes a lot of the same desires for the characters, a lot of the same goals for the characters, <clears throat> a lot of, a lot more similarities than I thought they would have when you first mentioned it or looked at about it, the more I really do see what you were saying. I love how, I think it's a great example of how comparing two texts can reveal like, I feel like I understand each one of them more mm -hmm. deeply through that comparison. Yeah. Um, also interesting. I think it was, might've been before we started recording, but you were saying like, did, did Zora Neale Hurston like try to make her book? Right. Like, Jane Eyre? You're we both right. like, I really don't think so. Um, and like we've said, like, you know, nationalities, different ethnicities, different eras, like other than being female, obviously being writers, like that's about it as far as the similarities yep. between the authors. Yeah. And yet why I think these are classics is that mm. they have these universal themes mm -hmm. and they speak to struggles and desires that 
we all experience. Mm-hmm. Like Liz Zoranial Hurston's book, I mean, it's very culturally and um, like historically specific as far as all of the dialect, yeah. but the universal themes that undergird it, if that's the right word, um, so timeless and powerful. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, now maybe you can add this as an aspect um, for when you teach it to your 12th graders next yeah. year. <laughs> I need to make that regime here. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, here we go. Um, <laughs> up here. Um, oh, what, what are you up to next? Will you be teaching this book again? Are you teaching a different book? Are you writing your own book? Let us know. Well, um, let's see. We just finished reading the screw tape letters Ooh. in my English class, which is another rich and unique <laughs> text. Yes. Um, also working on um, grade fiction novel Ooh. that I'm revising. Oh, fun. And I have a actually another fiction novel that's in the early, early phases. And a blog a little bit and um, work with clients and um teach an unearthing beauty class that is what i call it unearthing beauty it's a personal narrative like writing for self-discovery class that i really enjoy that's awesome well i'll make sure to link all the ways that uh, listeners can connect with you maybe find your course and read your blog as well um so look for those links um and then Mm -hmm. lastly this is a question i ask everyone um but what is your favorite book should have been prepared. Let's see. Um, <laughs> and it's okay. You know, like if it's three books, that's okay. hundred books, that's probably not okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say that Anne of Green Gables is one of my, you know, lifelong favorites. It's been Absolutely. a favorite for a long time. Yeah. Actually, we named our first daughter Avonlea. Aww. So there's commitment for you. Yep. yep. Um, hard question. I know. <laughs> we... I'll just tell you like at least another book that I really love I've read multiple times is um, Pam Houston. She is mostly a short story writer. Okay. And she wrote Waltzing the Cat, which is a collection of semi-autobiographical short stories that are sort of interrelated. Okay. Um, And I find that really moving Mm. and beautiful. Yeah. I'll also mention, oh gosh, I don't, never mind that one. I can't say that's a favorite, favorite. Okay. <laughs> you can mention it anyway. We'll say it's a, it's a kind of favorite. Well, I'll tell you. Okay. Actually, this is, this qualifies as a favorite. Okay. I would say my favorite book to teach is, so far, is um, A Farewell to Arms by oh. Ernest Hemingway. Yeah. So I think his style is so interesting and I love teaching it because there's so much to unpack and I love, you know, having students read a chapter and they're like, okay, so it's like two people like talk to each other and like <laughs> drink some wine and like, what's going on? And I'm like, wait, let me show you. And it's like this peeling back I love the, that. the scales and just revealing, mining the depths. So I really enjoy that that book to teach that's amazing i love that plus it's another great love story oh yeah well that one really is pretty depressing though yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right well
Well, thank you so much for joining me, Mara. This has been a real, well, both a surprise and a delight to talk about these two books. I've loved it. Oh, me too. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to Beth's Bookcast today. I've so enjoyed chatting about books with you. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure that you subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen so that we can find more readers to enjoy these books with us. Have a wonderful day and happy reading.